if you are, you know, you study, you gain some knowledge, you gain skills, and you do your best at something, and then you get out here in the world, and you should be able to make your way. And it's like, but we're all not on the same footing. And, and just, it's so, you know, it's just foul. Welcome back to I'm the Villain. Today, we're going to be talking with Ashley Jones. Um, and so, Ashley, why don't you just talk a little bit about what, whatever you want the audience to know about you? Well, I am uh, from Maryland originally. I currently work in D.C., live in Silver Spring. Um, I'm a graphic designer. I'm definitely a millennial. And I... Uh, I love questioning society and why we do the things that we do. Awesome. Well, that's exactly what this podcast is about. So today, today we're going to be talking about a topic that I think is is basically a very overarching topic to just what what I think our generation is thinking about in this particular moment, which is just how we want to define success um, in 2020. Yeah. So success. <laughs> success what does it mean what does it mean so what what um are you like passionate about like different ideas of success or like what do you or are you like really angry at certain ideas of success i just think success is a i don't know i think it we have to define it again for ourselves yeah. but there's kind of you know there's that whole meme of like okay boomer and it's like i feel like boomers gen x they kind of want to view us through their ideas of success instead of giving us space to kind of create our own thing. But mm -hmm. I guess that maybe is a cyclical thing. That's just kind of how it goes. Yeah. And, you know, I thought I've always thought that we have been doing a good job at like redefining what success is. But then I mean, and this is also like I live in D.C., so maybe I'm just surrounded by this. But like then I meet a lot of people that are like, yeah, like I'm killing myself to get into medical school or like I'm killing myself to like to get through law school or like whatever. And I don't really feel like I know a lot of people that wouldn't embody like an alternative idea of success or like are trying to pursue that. You know, that makes sense. I think D.C. is maybe the refuge for people who want to cling on to the old ideas of success yeah. of like you know, money and, and objects that you own, like cars and houses and stuff like that. I have experienced that hardcore being here because right now I work at Fannie Mae and I've been really culture shocked in a certain way because all of the environments that I had been in prior to being there have been these really progressive spaces and younger spaces like I never worked with my previous job. I only had one job out of college before that. But that at that job, it was predominantly people who had just graduated college. So people who are in my exact demographic and not people who were kind of older or with kids or anything like that. And there were so many people at Fannie Mae who I felt like were buying into that like, oh, like, let me tell you about my fancy BMW. Or like there's this one guy who like is really into getting every possible like Nike shoe. And those are like super expensive. And I was just like, wow, I actually have never really been in a culture that was this concerned with that kind of consumerist, really aspiring and valuing those trappings of wealth. I don't, I don't feel that way. And I don't think that most of my friends feel that way. And I was just like, wow, are there still people who 
think like this. Like I, I, I imagine that this is something that people like get over eventually. Cause once you have it, you're just like, okay, well yeah, I'm driving this nice car around. Is my life that different? I guess not, you know, but I, it doesn't seem like people actually do that. There are people who genuinely really care about that stuff. <laughs> I think that's because that's kind of the idea of adulthood that was sold to us. Yeah. You know, cause if you look at a lot of the entertainment, from like the late 90s, early 2000s, the examples of the successful people, I mean, I could borrow from Sex in the City. You know, why did what did Carrie think about success? Shoes, men, getting into the hottest restaurants, you know, being able to go to the Hamptons and this, that, and the other. So I think there's like a through line through that where you are kind of measured through these capitalistic gains. And I think that it would sort of be like remiss to not mention that uh, like only a certain group of people like ever get to the point uh, or like get to like the idea of uh, like the the idea of success that was sold to us. And I feel like a lot of this is, is perpetuated by people that maybe are like in a, in a low socioeconomic status or like people that grow up not having and you know, have yet to sort of like gain those things that we have defined as or that like our parents define as success for us. So like people spend their lives sort of like fantasizing about their what their lives would be if they had, you know, lots of money or like wealth or whatever. I think also sometimes with like the socioeconomic thing, it's like your wealth is very external Yeah. as far as things that you wear or things that you can own opposed to like maybe other people who are in different economic um, backgrounds where it's like uh, investing or owning property or having that kind of generational wealth. You know, I think that's definitely a thing too. When you were growing up, did you feel like your parents or whoever was taking care of you, were they pushing this idea of wealth on you or this, this idea of like success on you? I would say no. I just, I remember having friends and they would come home and they would say like, oh, well, I got to be on this, that, or the other. So, you know, I can't watch TV. And I'm like, <laughs> if I came home with a B, my mom would be like, good job. You know, mm. it's not like, uh, so I, don't, I mean, not to say that she wasn't supportive as far as like, I want you to succeed in whatever it is you choose. But I never, I didn't grow up in kind of that situation where it's like, you have to get a good job and that's like a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, business or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I went to art school, so. (laughs) Yeah. I, I feel like I definitely was, but as a function of like, I was raised by my grandparents and my grandfather, especially was he grew up like him and his family grew up like mad poor in Mississippi, you know, descendants of slaves and that kind of thing. And so I definitely think it was a function of kind of what I was talking about before the idea of like, yo, like we grew up not having. So my like my biggest dream for you, my grandson, would be to, you know, get a nice job that pays well and like have more than we had, you know. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of like societal societal implications for that. But I think that I spent the the greater part of, like, my time in grade school just, like, aspiring to be, like, normal shit. At one point, I wanted to, like, be a realtor. And because, like, real, I was, like, I knew that, like, being a realtor would, like, make me money. Or, like, I wanted to, like, be a business owner because, like, I knew that, like, as a, being a successful business owner would, like, make me money. But that was, like, the source of, like, what I thought I should be going for as a child. Isabel, what about you? 
See, for me, I think that a lot has a lot to do with um, how many generations away you come from someone who is really, really suffering because of their lack of financial security. Like my mom, like when she came, she came to the U.S. from China when she was 20 and she had like 60 bucks and she couldn't like buy textbooks and stuff. And she had one goal, which was to be able to make money. Right. And like feed her family and stuff like that. And so she she would be, I think she would be really out of place in, you know, a place like Swarthmore where I went to college because at Swarthmore there was all of this rhetoric of, you know, the life of the mind and following your passions and like no one, in fact, it's, it seems almost like kind of skeezy to talk about, oh, I, I want to get go and get this college education so I can get a job and make money, right? People would kind of frown upon that type of mentality and it's in my mind, a very classist thing, but also part of the goal of college is to bring people into higher socioeconomic classes, right? Luckily, I think for me, I didn't really inherit um, much of that desire to like make a ton of money, partially because she was successful in being able to do that. And she's like now a very successful corporate lawyer in New York. And I've never needed money and I was totally able to pay for school and all of that. So... I would say for me, this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently and in ways like that are very tangible to like literally what am I going to do next as I'm leaving my job next month, right? <laughs> because I'm trying to start a company and I think that a lot of people associate that with like, oh, like you want to be an entrepreneur so you can make a lot of money. And I listen to the How I Built This podcast um, a lot um, on NPR with Guy Raz and you know, he always asks them a lot of questions around, did you think, did you go into this like, you know, wanting to make a lot of money or like you have a ton of money now, do you feel like that's making you feel successful and stuff like that, right? So I think him asking those questions is echoing a lot of like the societal understanding of like entrepreneurs and stuff like that. And all of them, of course, say like, oh yeah, like it's not about the money. Like it's about being able to do this thing that I'm passionate about, right? Which is like kind of like, you buy it and you also don't buy it because you're like, okay, well, if you really don't care about all this money, why do you still have it? You know, why are you sitting on these billions of dollars? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, in terms of my thinking, I'm really hoping that like the things that will define success for me will be much more around the types of people that I can work with and being able to choose that and choose actively choose to build a community of people who share my values to work with me. I don't know how successful I'm going to be in that because I'm trying to go into the death industry and I don't know how many people are really interested <laughs> in like kind of working in the funeral industry. But that's really what I've been thinking about in terms of what defines my success. And I think that the reason I've come to that conclusion is also because I feel because I have the most people privilege possible right like in terms of getting the best possible education I went to this super elite boarding school for high school I went to Andover and then I went to you know a really high-ranking liberal arts school I feel a really strong need to use that for something as opposed to just kind of fuck off and like do something I think that would be self-serving or kind of like frivolous so I feel the need to have also part of my career be defined by something that's like helping other people in some way and I think that's the way a lot of millennials feel now, which yeah. is potentially damning because that's like a pretty high expectation. Well, before I got here, I definitely did a little Googling. So there was this interesting Atlantic article 
and um, it was called Making It Millennial. Um, but they had a good quote in there that said, the well-being of any society depends on each successive generation's ability to contribute to the common good. And I thought that was really interesting because I feel like, specifically with the millennials, we kind of have a lot of things working against us yeah. and hampering our ability to contribute to the common good because we're kind of, you know, we've got all this student loan debt and there's a lot of unemployment or underemployment, I should say. And just trying to even make ends meet and do all of those things, that's kind of stagnant too. So it's like, how can we, you know, try to contribute to the common good if we can't even like have just our basic needs met mm -hmm. so then we can go on and like do things? Because I kind of feel like with, I don't know, with my background, like my grandparents, they didn't graduate from high school. They did a lot of factory work or, you know, kind of cleaning up and like buildings and stuff like that. So then when my parents grew up, they were able to, you know, finish high school. They didn't go to college, but they were able to find good jobs, mainly in the government. Um, so then I think for my generation, when I was looking at them, I was kind of like, okay, you know, my dad really loved working with his hands and making furniture. He didn't really get to do that. My mom, she kind of was a natural at like being a seamstress and stuff like that. Again, didn't do that. So with me, art was always very important in our household. So I wanted to do that as far as like what, you know, I could do to make money for myself. And I've been able to do that. So I guess you can say in that way, it's kind of successful. But sometimes I feel a bit, I don't even know what the word is that for. I mean, I feel good about the fact that I was able to, to do the things that my parents did. But then I also kind of feel like I'm a bit behind maybe people who didn't have to kind of go through those hurdles. And then so I do think sometimes I'm thinking a little bit more practical and just kind of like, okay, let me just build a solid, stable life for myself. So I think it makes me a tinge risk averse. And I think to really kind of make an impact and do dynamic things, you kind of have to put yourself out there. Mm -hmm. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, ooh, I don't know. I got to mm -hmm. pay these bills. So and what, what hurdles uh, do you feel like you didn't have to get put through as a kid? Just being able to like even be a kid that takes art classes. Oh, like it, that it, stuff it. is just so expensive. The yeah. supplies. I was lucky because we had a lot of magnet schools. I grew up in Maryland. Mm. Um, so I went to like a magnet middle school and a magnet high school. Yeah. So your, your parents like encouraged you to like explore your art. Exactly. Got it. Because I it. think a part of that, and this is just me speculating, but I think it's because they didn't get to do that when they were, Mm -hmm. you know, my age. And did you, did, did you grow up feeling like you were in like a financially secure household? I think when you're younger, you don't, you don't have a sense of, that. you don't have a sense of money, yeah. but looking back, I'm like, whew. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, at a certain point, my mom was a single parent, you know, from right. like the age of five onwards. So she was the head of the household and, and the only one doing, you know, the primary caregiving. Yeah. So. Yeah. Cause I'm thinking about like what Isabel said about, yeah, like the proximity of your family's generation, like gener or like generations to, like when was the last time one of your like one of your family members had to like really really like struggle or like was really poor or whatever? And I'm wondering if that has like, because it seems like Isabel's parents were like, oh, we're doing well, and like because we're doing well, like our child can do like whatever she wants to do, like just have a good time. Yeah, I didn't really feel any pressure from my parents, and I feel super appreciative of this because 
my mom totally could have been that trope of the tiger mom, but she's super chill, right? And she does not have any, she's totally supportive of anything I want to do and is not really pressuring me to follow any one particular vision of what success is. But it seems like, Ashley, like your parents, you know, didn't get to pursue the things that they wanted to pursue in their childhood or in their like, just like being a human without, without kids that when they had a kid, they like were really focused on making sure that you got to be able to explore what you wanted to do. And I feel like my family has never had a ton of money. And granted, as a child, like I didn't really feel passionate about art or anything like that. So I, like I wasn't like I felt like repressed or anything, but I don't feel like I did feel like they expected me to like get good grades so I could go to college and get like a good job. But like in in some very, very quintessential, like classic place to work, like, you know being a realtor or whatever. Right. <laughs> I guess now, so you, Isabel talked a little bit about, about like what she defines as success or what would be success for you, for you, Isabel. What do you think, like, what do you think success looks like for you, Ashley? I definitely think money management is a mm-hmm. part of success for me just because again, just growing up, I just look back on it and I'm like, money is a skill, you know, knowing how to manage your money is a skill. And I think sometimes, depending on your socioeconomic uh, background, those aren't skills that you get. It's like sometimes people hit the adult ground running with money management skills. And then some other times you have to kind of figure it out as you go. And then maybe things that would have been great to know when you were like 23, you don't figure out until you're like 28. So you kind of have to try to play catch up. So Mm -hmm. I definitely think that that is a valuable thing because, again, Maybe I agree that millennials aren't as concerned with like careers and success in the traditional sense. Like I definitely do think a lot of us are concerned about making money and having like possessions and stuff like that. But I think also we kind of want to use our money to like live, you know, I feel like a lot of the previous generation, it's like, let me take all this money and put it, you know, like a, like a, what is it? The grasshopper and the ant. It's like, let me store it away. So then you know, come winter, I'll have yeah. a great time. I think, not to be morbid, but maybe some of that's too, because we're like, well, I don't think we're going to be able to retire. And if we do, <laughs> is there going to be a planet? I don't know. Yeah. So it's kind of like being able to experience things and to do things in the present. And to do that, you really have to be able to manage your money. And I think that that's also takes like such a huge toll on your brain resources like I was listening to like an Ezra Klein podcast recently where he had someone on the show that was talking about how like you should really kind of think of your resources as like in your brain as like the as basically being a brain bank right and you can only devote you know certain energies to certain things and what how are you going to budget it like what's your budget going to be and I think that the more you have to think about money like because you have less of it and you have to be so much more attuned to like how you're spending it and and frugal and whatever that then has such a toll on your brain budget right Mm -hmm. of like having to just think about that more because me being a very financially pros person don't am able to just like not really think about okay what is the exact you know amount that I have to spend this month you know to do whatever I want to do Right. And I think that's like a huge part of that management that you're talking about is just how much energy do I need to devote to doing this? Yeah. And I think also just not having as much money growing up, like I am like such a saver. 
Sometimes mm. I look back and I'm like, whoo, I, I saved a lot of money there. Or I'm very much like concerned with prices. Mm. I always joke with my sister. We have this saying like, yeah, we go shopping and it takes us forever because we have to look at like the price of everything we put in the cart. And it's like, you know, everybody doesn't do that. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's true. Everybody doesn't do that. I think also millennials are not as like wholly dedicated to like having families mm. as early as like some of our parents were or like were forced into or, you know, a lot of our parents didn't make that choice, but some of them did to like get married and start families on average, definitely a lot earlier than millennials are. Um, and I think that like that sort of like with that institution playing like not as big of a role in our lives yet as they did in our parents' lives, it is like another big factor that's pushing us to redefine what success is. Cause I think that for a lot of our parents, like success was getting married and having a kid and like being able to like to provide a decent life for your kid and like, you know, continue your family line or whatever. And it seems like we are like searching for other avenues and like are not as concerned with that. And maybe, yeah, like maybe it is because we're like, yo, shit's kind of fucked. Like let's have a good time while we're here. <laughs> but I feel like for me, like I established a, a good job base for myself so that like I make, I make a decent amount of money now now that I'm like, I am there and like, I'm like consistently paying bills or whatever. Now I feel, um, now I feel like I have like the room to be concerned with like the softer definitions of, of success for me, like fulfilling relationships or whatever. But I do feel like I had to get, I had to like get that baseline first before I could be concerned with what, what like success, what other ways success could look like in my life. Yeah. And I think, um, just being able to take care of yourself was also a big uh, thing for me growing up. And just as far as defining success, that's definitely a part of it. You know, just, just being stable and I don't know. Because I think, I, I, I really truly think that the idea of adulthood that we were sold, like just that's just not the world we inherited. You know, I think we kind of thought that we were going to get here and, and it would be this totally different thing. Um, but being able to take care of yourself in this current society, it's a feat. And not to say if you can't take care of yourself, it's not you're not successful. I just think that just being an adult and like being able to do that, it does make you feel just secure, which security in and of itself does feel successful. I think I, I see it as kind of a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You have to like, you have this success ladder of, okay, now I've fulfilled this kind of success milestone. I've figured out how to be stable and pay for my life. And then you have to start, yeah, like you said, looking at more of those like softer definitions of success and, you know, thinking more about making an impact. And I think the impact piece, especially because it's such a buzzword, it's also just as our expectations get higher and higher, we'll probably become less and less happy because that's just a function of, you know, the difference between your reality and then your expectations and how, how far apart they are. Right. Yeah. I think capitalism is definitely incongruent with like 
prosperity almost. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hard to even have a notion of societal impact and, and just the way that our society is structured. I just, I don't really see how that's sustainable for the future. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very scary to people because again, that's kind of all you know. That's what you were raised with those are the values that were instilled in you I mean it makes me think also of like the American dream that's another huge marketing tool that was trotted out for decades and I just I don't think we ever stop and look at those types of things and and really question like what do they mean and and how how are they serving us and how are they not and and should we change them and then also I think sometimes with those things because I just feel like we're not, as a generation, in a position of power to even reshape society in the ways that we should. I shouldn't mm-hmm. say should, but no, whatever. That we should, because again, it's just the capitalism is not sustainable for having a future. We, we can't have, we can't keep consuming the way that we do. We can't keep allowing some people to accrue so much wealth where other people are just living off of change. It's just that like huge, vast deficit just cannot, it's not sustainable. I do wonder if we are going to like keep the same energy as we start taking like more and more positions, positions in like Congress and stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Cause eventually like in like 20 years, millennials will make up a lot of, cause right now we're not in, a lot of the big powerful decision-making positions, but I feel like in 20 years we will be. Part of me wonders if this is going to be like a thing that we, once we start getting into those positions, we're just going to start solving these problems or start like making a, like a lot of progress on the, on these. Cause it does feel like we're kind of stagnating or have been stagnant in like pushing for like progressive financial policies in the past couple of years. Like, is this a problem that's going to like solve itself when we, when we get into Congress? Well, I definitely had a coworker who, uh, before she retired, she was like, you know, you're, you seem, you're a sane person. You know, if, if you ever don't want to do your job anymore, you might want to get into politics, you know? And I think that's across the board with a lot of us. I think they always say a lot of people who would be great in, in uh, political positions don't seek those out because they're not the type of people who are... Uh, narcissistic or called right yeah the best leader is called power driven (laughs) you know wanting all of this grandiose responsibility and and being able to literally control people's lives they they, that's not seem you know it doesn't seem attractive to them but those people are actually very good for those positions because they don't have that so I hope that you know younger people will get into the political arena because it's funny you say 20 years from now. I don't know. I read some some uh, study that the Cli- Climate Institute of wherever put out, and it's like 20 years from now, things are going to get real interesting. So I think almost out of necessity, we'll just have to make the changes if we want to have, you know, a future. And I, I wonder also what is going to be the thing that actually motivates that, because I think climate might be one, but I think that what might beat us to it is the automation piece right because so much of that is I really have very little faith I know a lot of people are like oh well we've had these kinds of revolutions before like the industrial revolution right where we thought that everyone was going to be out of a job but now that there's (laughs) uh, I was mentioning a previous episode that this person at work was really encouraging me to 
listened to some podcasts um, with Andrew Yang because I was like on this project at work talking about how underwriters like for mortgages are going to be increasingly automated, right? And we're literally like in the process now of, of automating those jobs. And that's a really white collar, like high paying, very like highly educated job, right? And what's interesting is that like, I would say that a fair number of those jobs are actually going to be jobs that you need a college degree for, right? Um, not just, you know, like truck driver jobs or cashier jobs, right? It's probably going to take a little bit longer to automate them, but I think they're definitely, that's coming, right? And according to Andrew Yang, he says that the truck driver, like the self-driving truck um, is going to basically hit the roads for real, like, you know, it's in terms of people commercially adopting it for their fleets in the next four years, like during the next presidency, basically, right? And that's a huge percentage of the jobs, especially in those swing states. That I think is really compelling, right, as a, as a reason for like us needing to figure out this capitalism shit, right? <laughs> yeah, but it's the, I, I don't know, because I think, I think we're dealing with that now too, because you mentioned like the Rust Belt, because you would think that because you see this kind of uh, need for jobs and that would make people want to move towards some type of solution, mm -hmm. but it seems like it's been more fear-based. So yeah. people kind of double down on stuff like coal or the various factories and they're like, no, we just want to bring them back. And it's like, you can't time travel. That's mm -hmm. just not how society works. Right. So I would hope that we would be able to kind of use that as a catalyst to have sweeping change. But I don't know. There's always that, that, that possibility that will become a bit more dystopian. Yeah. Just because of that fear-based, you know, reaction. I mean, I think that it's really difficult to come up with solutions in the sense that the United States is super bad at job training programs, mm -hmm. right? And trying to transition people from one workforce that's going out of, like, that's basically being retired to a new one, right? Mm -hmm. Because the skills required for the jobs are, are totally new skills, right? And they're not necessarily easy to train someone who doesn't have a high level of education, right? It's like hard to train. It's not like we can just take all the truck drivers and make them into programmers. I think we could. You think so? I do. I really do think that, that people can learn new skills. It's just a matter of how, how you're teaching them to them. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I feel like if you have programs that can kind of meet people where they are, so they can see the the value of it and then also feel like it's something tangible mm -hmm. then i i don't i don't see why not i mean i'm of the mind though that like if you can use a smartphone you can learn the program i mean it's also a matter though of are those going to be the things that they want to do that's the million dollar question and that's yeah. what i was kind of thinking about when when you know talking about the rust belt because i do think that there were a couple of stories i saw um, articles around the election back in 2016 where people there were programs to kind of transition people who had done coal mining into uh, different technology-based careers and mm -hmm. there was a lot of people who didn't want to do it there were some people who were fine with it and I'm sure they were able to find jobs in in transition but there were other people who were like no I don't want to do this and that's because I think it got to the point where being a coal miner was a part of their identity. 
And I think maybe also that's kind of a generational thing too. I think like our parents' generation, it's almost like your career became a part of your identity. And maybe that's why you're so reluctant to kind of move from job to job. It makes more sense to kind of just uh, stay with one employer because it, it just it becomes a part of your life in that way. And yeah. I definitely think millennials are a bit different. I think that, yeah, like millennials are just like generally pushing back on that idea and like are trying to become like whole people that have jobs instead of just their jobs. And I think that is like a lot of what kind of pushes us to bounce around, right? And we don't want to like stay at a job for too long. And we, like a lot of us are, like trying to like push back against yeah like sitting in front of a screen for eight hours and pushing against the like the eight hour work day and things like that because we and I think largely this is just like societal progression societal progression like we've seen our parents and like the generation before them sort of like grind it out at a job for a long time and we're seeing that like not really work you know we're seeing our parents a lot of our parents like not in good shape or you know maybe didn't like didn't make enough money to retire or whatever and we like have accrued a lot of student debt and like I feel like our generation is on the cusp of this idea that like yo like maybe this isn't the way to do things um and trying to make change but then also on the cusp of like automation is going to happen soon and it feels like like we're we're reaching this sort of tipping point but I'm not sure what what you know what we're going to tip into and I think that no one really is and I think that's part of like you know the fear of shit I'm curious what you guys think from, uh, I'm the only like non-black person in the room, right? And, (laughs) and you know, that mentality that I was talking about before of like, you know, this very consumerist culture that you see a lot of DC, I think you also see mirrored in the vision of success in a lot of like famous black people who really like made it and been successful, right? Of like the chains and the Bugattis and like now we're going to, you know, like start at the bottom, now we're here, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of a much more like racialized notion of that. But I do feel like that probably plays a role, right? In like what that, or what just, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think some of that is cultural because I do think the whole presentation aspect is a part of black culture, but more in a sense of like pride and just presenting yourself because I think in a lot of ways historically black people we haven't been able to control our own narrative so we've often looked for ways to kind of take back some of that agency and sometimes that has been through like your presentation because it's like you may not see me in a certain way but what I'm going to project and what I have control over I'm going to put into the world and maybe you will see me the way that I see myself. So it's kind of like those types of uh, devices. Yeah. I think like the movement, especially in hip hop and R&B to sort of like wear our wealth and like ride in our wealth and be, just be very visible in our wealth. I think kind of like what you were saying is almost like a direct counteraction to like, you know, the direct and like pointed effort of, America to like suppress black people in general, you know, and culturally like wealth wise, you know, agency wise. And I think that because hip hop, especially is such a new thing, right? Like hip hop was invented in like the late eighties and, um, which means that this whole culture is very new. And I think that, yeah, to 
like in the beginning it was like yo like we have wealth now and we're not like we're like we can't be stopped like you can't hide we can't you can't make us hide this and i think now that we've sort of lived in that for a little bit we're seeing a lot of our sort of like older figures older like black wealthy people talking and like whether it's within music or just like being very public about like yo you should try to own shit you should try to invest and I th- like jay-z his whole last album was like yo like invest <laughs> like this money like like my coke money got me so far and my, my music money got me so far but now i'm rich because i invested and like i own mm-hmm. shit and you should own shit um and i feel like you know diddy's doing the same thing and like black ownership of like our platforms is becoming like bigger and bigger so i feel like yeah it's it feels almost like a natural progression to me where it started out like black people started being able to like or more effectively be able to you know like earn generate income and wealth and at first we were like yo fuck you all (laughs) like i have this chain and you can eat a dick (laughs) and now it's like I have this chain, you can eat a dick, but also I have some land back in Kentucky. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I was, uh, I think also a lot of people from like your Diddy's and your Jay-Z's or your like Tyler Perry's, I think they've gotten to the point where, yeah, they've seen like, I've been able to amass wealth and amassing wealth is also kind of a, a, a beacon to people to say, hey, I did this. I look like you, so you could do this too. Mm-hmm. But now I think they're in this kind of more nuanced space where it's like, oh no, I need to take the next generation and like pull them up yeah, so that they can like get where they need to be too. And I think that's really exciting. I also think it, it does speak a lot to how like the narrative of, of success for black people has always looked so much different than like the classic narrative of success for white people. Like I feel like, I feel like so many of us, us as in black people, were because of because of like you know generational lack generational lack of wealth and like generational oppression, were raised in like low socioeconomic statuses with parents like just trying to get us, like just trying to encourage us to like you know get good jobs and like make like make decent money, um, so that we could like help rise our families out of poverty. Whereas like, I feel like a lot of our like white counterparts were we're fed maybe more of the traditional American dream of like, yo, you can do whatever you want be whatever you want to be. But I don't know. That's just like conjecture on my part. But even that American dream is nonsense for people. Cause there are, there's people who are in a different socioeconomic status, even in, I guess the space of whiteness, you know, some of the, the people who are maybe at a lower income level and white, their experience is more uh, comparative to a lot of black people's experiences. And somehow we never kind of get to the point where you see... Bridge the gap. Yeah, yeah. And then also just with the the, the black socioeconomic status, you know, I just really feel like the weight of that is never realized or communicated. It's just like, like we really are missing out on money that we should have got like years ago back in, in, you know, the mid what 19th century. Mm -hmm. We're we're still waiting on that money. Like, yeah. And I think, and this is just from what I hear secondhand, you know, through my friends, but it does sound like the narrative, like you're talking about with like, you know, investing, right. Is, moving towards one of, you know, as opposed to just like consumerism, one of like, okay, but also we have to like really promote some financial literacy, 
right? And like promote that among like the younger generations of people because you still, I mean, you know, in sports, right? There's like tons of black NFL players, right? Who made tons of money early on in life and then retired, right? And then had to make that money last the whole rest of their life, which is really, really difficult for anyone. Figuring out how do you get down to not only just, okay, like getting the money, but also making sure that people have that like understanding of how to like manage wealth responsibly, like exactly like you were talking about. But I think also that is kind of the antithesis of capitalism because capitalism doesn't want you to know how to manage your money yeah. because it's more beneficial if you don't. Yeah. I think counter to that narrative, Isabel, I feel like I can't remember who I was talking to recently, but this person that I was talking to was like, like vehemently against the idea that financial literacy is like the big problem. This person was arguing that like, you know, low income people are the most financially literate people that, that exist because they, their whole existence has been stretching dollars to make ends meet. And that it's not that poor people don't know how to spend money. It's just they don't fucking have it, <laughs> you know? But I also yeah. think that when you're at different income levels, financial literacy could also mean different things, right? Because the knowing how to spend the money that you have in your, you know, instructing your dollar wouldn't necessarily translate into knowing how to invest in ETFs, right? Or get a 401k or know the difference between a, like a Roth IRA, right? And a regular IRA or whatever, you know? Yeah. And I think that like the NFL player trope, I think is unique because it's specifically this narrative of someone that grew up having no money and now they have a fucking lot of money, you know? And I think for most people, the growth is much more gradual than that. And like people like, you know, start making a little bit more money at a time and like learn from mis like micro mistakes that they make as, the, as they go along the path. But certainly for, you know, people that get into positions where they all of a sudden are making a shit ton of money should definitely, you know, at least hire somebody to manage their money for them. Right, because I, I, you guys know that pretty popular Upshot article in the New York Times that had that infographic of people basically like starting, if you control for like how much wealth they had when they were growing up, if you look at people's races and it like talk, looks at the distribution of like how many people were able to maintain that level of that class level or like that socioeconomic status throughout their life and then like, you know, translate that into more money for their future generations Black people were still less able to do that than their white counterparts who were at the same income level, like, starting out. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of systemic reasons for that. But generally, I think definitely going back to this idea of, like, what is preached to us and taught to us. And, I, you know, I think that investing and ownership is a fairly new narrative in the black community, but maybe one that's been touted for, like for other subsections of Americans for a long time. Yeah. But then it also kind of makes you feel like, like, that's such bullshit. Like, Oh, it's horse shit. Yeah. And it's, it's not fair. But <laughs> also because, like, I, I feel like there's this also this notion of things that were sold to us when we were younger of, like, a meritocracy. Like, if you, if you are, you know, you study, you gain some knowledge, you gain skills, and you do your best at something, and then you get out here in the world, and you should be able to make your way. And it's like, but we're all not on the same footing. And, and just, it's so, you know, it's just foul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that they kind of make us feel that way from really little. And then you really kind of don't get to peek behind that curtain until you get much older and you're like, wow, yeah, that sucks. Like, you know, most people work hard. Like, yeah. especially most, like, 
middle to low income people work hard. You know, this is like, it's not a meritocracy. Oh, no. <laughs> but, well, and also, like, I don't, I really don't think that working hard should be considered the metric, right? Because it really depends on why, right? Like, there's this guy who drives a shuttle for Fannie Mae, like, back and forth between, like, the metro and the office. And he literally works 13 hour days. And it's not because, oh, he's like this virtuous person who's like a really hard worker, right? Which, like, you know, I'm sure he's great, right? But he shouldn't have to do that. That's not like a good thing that he's working that much, right? Yeah. <laughs> or at least the pay should be, you know, he should be paid way more. Yeah. Because that job, like, like the people, the hardest working people I feel are like the people who work in the food industry. Because... <sighs> If you're like if you're a a, if you're a chef at a restaurant, you're getting there for prep early in the morning. You stay into like the night shift and like work dinner shift, and then you leave and you come back the next morning. You know? Yeah, it's hard and work. Like that's horseshit. It is. <laughs> and like kind of tying this back to maybe something more salient for like DC millennials. Like last night, I was at a social function where I met like two congressional staffers that both of their um, they're on opposite sides of the aisle. Funny and funnily enough. But both of their bosses, both of their like Congress people, are playing like pivotal roles in you know some of the proceedings that are happening in, in the Capitol right now. Mm. And she was like, "Yeah, um, we as a staff are trying to make sure that no one spends more than thirteen hours in the Capitol at one time." Yeesh. She was like, "You know, I got like, I get there at like between six and eight o'clock every morning, and I'm out between you know eight and nine most nights." That is nights. not good for your brain. And we were like, I mean, I already knew the answers to these questions, but we were like, yo, like any like overtime or any like flex hours, anything like that? She was like, nah, no. And they don't pay them anyway. No, not, like, I mean, they, they get paid a little, but not a lot. And, and it's just something that it's just like one of the many environments. And I feel this way about the nonprofit sector, too. It's one of the many like environments that like millennials heavily populate in which we enter. And it's just like expected of us to just work more or work more than our fair share and like work and be expected not be compensated for all the hours that we put in for this like phantom idea that it'll pay off at some point down the road. But I feel like for a lot of us, it probably fucking doesn't. Yeah, no. And I think we're indoctrinated with that. Like, especially if you go through the, you know, collegiate system, because everything is always, you need to intern, you need to intern and the internships are hardly ever paid. And it's almost like a, I feel like it's almost viewed viewed like some sort of like benevolent struggle that like a lot of us go through where we're like we when she was talking last night at this function a lot of people were like like wow good for you like you're such a hard worker and in my head I'm like dude are you okay like are you sure you still want to be doing this job like I sure you don't want to find something else to do <laughs> you know and mm -hmm. but I feel like it's like touted amongst not just millennials like amongst like you know, this is, I think this is more of an issue with just like the American work culture, but people that, you know, overwork themselves and like are willing to put in the extra hours and, you know, like that, like all that is like romanticized and sort of folded into what it means to be a good worker in a capitalist society. And I think that that's horseshit. <laughs> it is. I think that's also a generational thing, too, because it's kind of how, you know, why are you wearing your 
trauma as a badge. Yeah. I, it's like that whole uh, thing where it's like, in my day, I had to walk through the snow you know, to school yeah. and for three I'm, miles. And it's like, that's horrible. Like, that sucks, dude. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm gonna make sure that I don't have to do that. And then my yeah, kids let's don't not have to keep do that. that going. That's bad. Let's leave that in the past, you yeah. know? And so I feel like, but all of this also gets folded into the like shitty entitled millennial, you know, like thing where our older like colleagues look at us and think that we are just like, being snobby and stuck up and like too demanding when in actuality it's like no dude like we i like i think that i mean i can't change the past but ideally i would have liked you to not have to struggle the way that you did and i want not just me but like generations down i don't want you know my kids and my grandkids or whatever to feel like they need to go and take an unpaid 13 hour a day internship yeah so i have to make it and i don't want them to have to go into a world in which that's expected of them and so yeah, like, call me entitled. I don't care. Whatever. Fuck it. <laughs> yeah. And I think the younger generation, we have the benefit because we're not close to all that stuff. So we can see the cracks in the facade, whereas, like, you're too close to it, you know, when it's your actual generation. And so there's a value in that. Ashley, thanks so much for sitting down with us today. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. For sure. Um, we had a great time. I had a great time getting to know a little bit more about you. I think it's cool that you're an artist. I feel like I don't meet many artists, you know? Yeah, we hide. <laughs> <laughs> like you as a subset of humans just hide in general. I feel like we do because honestly, I don't have that many artist friends. That's been like a thing of mine where I'm yeah. like, I need more graphic friends like who do graphic design and stuff like that. But I feel like we're all like in our house with our art supplies or behind our laptops, <laughs> just not hanging out. So if you liked this podcast, if you liked Ashley or if you disliked Ashley or me or Isabel, um, shoot us a like a comment on Instagram or an email at I'm the villain pod at gmail.com. So yeah, just let us know. We're trying to like talk more to whoever listens to this podcast. A big thanks again to Ashley and bye.